This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Indeed, you have found the College Football Fix Podcast. I'm Dan Walton with Paul Meyerberg. And Paul, week zero's in the books. We're heading into week one, the actual start of the season. This is what we play for. This is what we wait all year for. But we got to talk a little bit about what happened last Saturday. How did you spend week zero? And how fired is Scott Frost? Okay. This is what we train for. This is what we lift all those weights for. Um, all that time on the elliptical machine is for week one. Um, on Saturday, I got up. I walked the dog. How detailed do you want this, Dan? I can give you hour by hour. I'm going to. You can I'm, sort of skip through like the breakfast okay. and just go straight to. Straight till 1230. 1230. Yeah. Maybe 1236 ish, I would say. Never in a rush to catch the, the 1230 introduction. I get on the couch for Nebraska Northwestern. Um, what unfolded there, Dan, is uh, is so predictable that if it was a TV show, they'd be like, go back to the writer's room and give us something new. Give us something fresh. But this is just so, so, so typical. I'm pretty sure that if you put Scott Frost like seven miles away from a Nebraska game, he would do something to like have them lose by a field goal or six points. So devastatingly awful. And look like it's one week into the year. We've got 12, 13, 14 more weeks of this nonsense from this program and this coaching staff. I just, I wish it was done already. So I think Scott Frost, I believe in now year five, he's won 10 games in the Big Ten. It's, it's, it's not a good record. And yet you think about it, let's just say they had won, he had won half of the games that Nebraska should have won in that time. Instead of a 10 and 26 record in the Big Ten, what are we looking at? 500? I mean, just, just half the games. They just won half the games they should have won. If they are, if they just, let's even say that they are, he's 500 overall as a coach. What do you, I think, I believe he's 15 and 30 now. Let's say that he was 15 and 30. 20, I can do this math, 23 and 22, right? It's just a different uh-huh. feel around everything there. And you're not like throwing your hands up in frustration or like carrying a, you know, like a effigy into Memorial Stadium next week. It's a totally different feel. But the truth is, it's been bad since day one, Dan. It's been bad since day one. And hoping and praying that like this bad trend would somehow like just reverse and turn great in 2022 is just kind of nonsense. So it's like a playing out the string season and it's August. So it's it's pretty dreadful. The idea that Nebraska has had four losing seasons in a row under Scott Frost, like if you just take a step back and think about that, is mind-blowing in and of itself. And then you come out, you go all the way to Dublin, you've talked up your team all offseason. It's not like Scott Frost is one to sort of shirk from expectations or to try to temper expectations. I mean, he leans in every single time to we are going to be awesome. This is finally it. And then they get over there. They're up 11. Basically, at that point, against Northwestern of all teams, the game should be over. You're late enough in the game that you just have to kind of not allow a huge play or not make just this ridiculous mistake. And then he calls for an onside kick for some reason, totally unnecessary. Yes, you could say, hey, if it works – and they win the game, we're talking about what a brilliant call it is. No, it's not a brilliant call. It's a dumb call. Not in that situation. Not when you have a two-score lead. Not when you're playing Northwestern, a team that has absolutely no offense. And yet he did it, and it blew up in his face, and they gave up 5 million rushing yards, and this is just the same old crap from Nebraska over and over and over again. At least the fans got free beer in the stadium. That's probably about the only thing that they're going to come home with is a good memory from that day. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that flight home, not even for the fan base. What about that team flying home across the ocean on a Sunday? I mean, just dreadful. Um, there's nothing more to be said, right? We've, we've, we've hammered this team. We've hammered this coach for so long. At this point, I, did, I just wish it was over. And I don't know why you would say after Saturday that like this could still be a seven or eight win team. 
it seems pretty obvious that no matter what steps they take forward from January till August or September, they're going to be undone by one thing or another. I, I wrote on Saturday that it's legitimately like a horror movie. Everything looks good at the start. Something seems amiss. Uh, there's this big twist where Scott Frost or someone else will do something that like ruins their chances. And then there's this like bloody and awful finish every game, every week. Um, and it's not like a fun, terrible team. They're just a terrible, terrible team. So at least you won't talk about them again until he gets fired. Is it too early to talk about who should replace Scott Frost or which candidates Nebraska is going to look at? I mean, it feels like yet too early because it's week one and obviously there's a lot of season left to play, but we all know where this is heading and what's going to happen. Last time Nebraska went through this, Scott Frost was the obvious candidate. He was the only candidate. This time, I would think it's got to be more wide open. Trev, Trev Alberts, the AD, is certainly a guy who is connected to Nebraska football, but I don't really feel like hiring a Nebraska guy to be the head coach this time, if there even is one. I mean, what, Craig Bowl or something? I, I don't know. <laughs> like, what do you do? You're running out of guys. Like, uh, you're, you're going to hire Tommy Frazier? Like, you're running out of dudes. At some point, the well is run dry. Uh, we will talk about this at length, I'm sure, in October, November. But if we were going to just do a quick list, I always tell any Power 5 job, I would always tell any Power 5 job within reason, you should have two or three guys who you who, who have to say no. You have to make them say no. And I think for Nebraska, that's a Chris Peterson. It's a Matt Rule. More realistically, maybe your top-tier guy is Dan Mullen or it's Lance Leipold, or it's Chris Kleiman. You know, I think that's much more realistic. But if I was Nebraska, Trev Alberts is an outside-the-box kind of guy. It's it's easily um, going to start with Peterson and Matt Rule, if Matt Rule's available. Yeah, yeah, Matt Rule certainly not having a great run so far in the NFL. There are a lot of colleges that I think, if their job came open, that would want to get in the Matt Rule business. And Nebraska is certainly one of those that you could see as a decent fit. And obviously that would be a home run if they were able to do that, because you know, even if he's been ineffective on some level in the NFL, he has proven that he's a very good college head coach. So that would be smart. I don't know how much we want to delve into week zero because there just wasn't a whole lot happening. I did want to note that I'm glad I talked you out of picking Hawaii against the Vanderbilt Commodores. <laughs> Because did you see the final hey, score? Did you I, no, I didn't. I, it's too late. It was too late for me. Yeah, I, I didn't. Actually, since you were going to ask how my day was, um, after about after Wyoming, Illinois, which would have been about 7.40, 7.45, pretty much called yeah. it a day. I did, not, I did not hang out for the rest of the night. I went out and, and, and had, had several drinks. So I did not stay home. Or I, was a, I was dead to the world by Vandy, Hawaii, by the second half. But Vandy looked good. Um, Clark Lee said that at some point Vanderbilt's going to be the top team in the country. I think you can say, based off all the teams that have played right now, Vanderbilt's the best team in If college. we're doing college football playoff committee rankings based on week zero, Vanderbilt is your number one seed. Absolutely. They won on the road against a team that has reached bowl eligibility within the last two years, um, and they dominated. So Vanderbilt, number one. Number one with a bullet. I don't even know who number two would be. Number two is probably Northwestern, Illinois, number three. And and then that's it. Vanderbilt, number one, most importantly. Another thing that happened last weekend that I just want to touch on briefly is Florida A&M. They played a season opener at North Carolina. And, look, North Carolina was able to um, – pull away in the second half and, and win the game. I, I did not really get to see much of it. I don't think it was some amazing performance by North Carolina. It was much closer for a good portion of that game than the 56-24 final score. But the more interesting development around that game was the fact that Florida A&M on Friday was contemplating not playing because they had 20-something guys ineligible. They were down a whole bunch of linemen. And we're now seeing a lot of, I think, inner strife and incompetence 
in the Florida A&M Athletic Department come to the public forum in a way that that maybe um, they didn't intend, but was was unavoidable. When you're talking about canceling potentially a Division One college football game, uh, the only thing that would cancel a college football game that we've ever experienced before is either weather, like extreme weather, or COVID. And obviously, it happened a lot during COVID. Uh, but the idea that you would cancel a game because you have had a bunch of players academically ineligible is bizarre because all of these schools typically put so many resources into their support staff, their academic staff, and just making sure, yeah, a guy or two might fall through the cracks or fail a class and there's unavoidable situations. But to have like 25% of your team potentially ineligible is a massive failure. And we're already seeing in the subsequent days a lot of um, a lot of concerns being raised by the players now at Florida A&M as they're in this situation. I, this is going to be an interesting thing to follow because it, it's not been a very good look for that school. Yeah, I, I think the, the best word you used there, Dan, and that was a great breakdown of what unfolded is incompetent, um, total incompetence from an athletic department and their student services, from their academic support team, if, if one does exist, total incompetence to have a marquee game on their schedule nearly canceled and all the money that actually brings to the university and athletic department alone. It's just unbelievable. And we saw this letter, and I think it's been inked by 89 players on that team detailing just a, a litany of issues, most of them related to academics. And not like, hey, we're not getting the tutoring support we need or we're not getting the time we need to do our academics, but we're getting bad information. Like they're being given bad information according to this letter that players signed about um, the number of credits they need to take, what credits would be applicable or transferable, where their standing needs to be at X date to play this season. And they were let down. Um, and that's just unbelievably unfortunate. And like you said, a, a total example of incompetence from an athletic department and, and the leadership there. Well, and it also highlights the difference between the rich and the poor in college football because at a school like North Carolina just as an example they have support people for every aspect pretty much of the life of the student athlete uh, and that encompasses you know dietary needs it encompasses mental health it encompasses um you know what classes they should take now North Carolina may be a bit of a bad example of that because of what uh, what we all learned a few years ago with the African-American studies program. And maybe uh, they were too good at, at managing which classes their athletes were taking. But in general, my point is like these schools have enough staff around in their athletic department to cover the bases and to make sure that these guys don't have these eligibility concerns, but at a place like Florida A&M where they don't get a lot of money from their conference affiliation, uh, their budget is stretched thin on every level of their athletic department. Also right now they don't have an athletic director because the, the guy who was the athletic director left to take uh, an administrative job at Tulane. Apparently their compliance director uh, position was also open and unfilled. So you've got like, People who are trying to cover jobs that they're not is not reg, part of their regular responsibilities, or maybe they're not qualified for. To me, it just shows you the difference between a school that's got the money to take care of all the needs of the student athlete and an athletic department that that really doesn't. And um, I, over many many years, one of the big complaints, especially from HBCUs, uh, because they were always getting hammered by the NCAA on academic stuff, APR, graduation rates. It was so much lower. Well, the reason it was lower is because they didn't have the support staff and they didn't have the money to go hire a bunch of people to to deal with the academic side. And yet, you know, you'd think that over time that would be a priority. Well, in this case, it it uh, the system obviously failed and it's it's really unfortunate and I hope those players can figure out a way to you know, have a fulfilling season, even if there's obviously major issues there. Yeah. And, and lastly, I'd want to say, and, I, and I, I think it's an important, like kind of nuanced part of it is 
um, I think boiled down, this is almost a health and safety issue. Um, yeah, like 100%. You're going to play at North Carolina. Four stars, a couple five stars, big, strong kids are going to play potentially in the NFL. And you've got a limited roster. You're already short in terms of the talent, speed, athleticism, deficit. It's a health and safety issue. So it's not just letting a team down. It's potentially uh, having a, a situation where a player is overstressed, overtaxed, or gets injured. And, and that's a problem. So they got to clean this up if they're going to play this year. As we get into week one of the college football season, we're learning more about uh, who's going to play quarterbacks at certain schools, uh, who's going to start at different positions. We're getting all these announcements and who's won certain jobs. What we're not getting is much information about Texas because Steve Sarkeesian at the University of Texas has decided not to put out a depth chart, not just for week one, but for the entire season. In the year 2022, why the hell are coaches still doing this? <laughs> um, I don't know, Dan. I wish I knew. I really don't know. It's not like Quinn Ewers or, or Hudson Card, like when he throws the ball, he actually like kicks it or like he can like spin it a special way or like he does something different. It, he's also going to throw the ball forward with his right arm. So I'm not quite sure what the benefit is. And it's clearly like most of the time it's about who your quarterback's going to be. Um, just go ahead and give the depth chart. Well, but just that's the weird thing, right? It. Texas did name a starting quarterback. So we know Quinn it, Ewers is going to be the starter. We, it's, it's, everybody else we, it's everybody else we don't know. But it's in all these, in not all, because clearly Texas is the exception. In 90% of 95% of it, it's, yeah, we've made a decision at QB. We're not going to announce anything. We're going to play it close to the vest, and therefore we're going to play this whole entire depth chart close to the vest. I don't get the benefit to it. Um, I don't. It's not like high school where you've got a kid who moved over from from New Brunswick, and you just don't want to let them know that you've got this, like, 17-year-old man-child ringer who's going to dominate. I, I don't get it. Um, but uh, Steve Sarkeesian just went 5-7 and seven at Texas um, and had the worst season in 60 years there. Who are we to doubt? his uh, motivational tactics or techniques. Well, I'm sure that this proprietary information on who they're playing will make a huge difference against Louisiana Monroe in their opener. You had an interesting story about what college football would look like if it was set up like the NFL with 32 teams. And this is a concept that kind of came up around the European soccer super league that, uh, was formed and then actually canceled um, because of the backlash and uproar among some of the European fans, I guess, was it a couple years ago last year? I can't remember exactly when that was a big talking point, but what, what did you uh, learn? What did you write in this story and just kind of explain it from your perspective, what, what that would mean for college football if we ever got to that point? Yeah. You know, it's been such a topic of conversation, this idea that we could have two, 16 plus team leagues let's split off or at the very least dominate college football so i think that was the genesis of it what was fun to do was just kind of go through and and using the criteria that you imagine the nfl nfl style league would use which is like are you good uh or have you been good uh what kind of untapped resources do you have are you supported by fans would people watch you on tv what market are you in so it was fun to go down those lines and, and kind of make those hard decisions. So I don't, obviously, and, and we've talked about this many times, this is not going to be the future of college football. But I think it'd be pretty cool if it was, honestly. I think it'd be pretty cool. I would hate to be like Iowa, which for me was like Team 33 that just got left out. But I think it'd be a fun uh, and interesting split if we really did just kind of take 32 teams from across the country, throw them together and say, here's your Super Bowl. So we'll never see it, but it can't be worse than what we've got. Well, I don't know that we'll never see it because the way I look at it is we evolve through this conference realignment period that it seems like for now it's it's kind of quiet. We don't know exactly what's going to happen with the Big Ten over the next three years. It seems like they might be in the mood to expand a little further. Uh, but I do think that the next iteration, and I don't know – when that will happen. But if you are Florida, Alabama, Georgia, do you look at some point at Ole Miss, Mississippi State, and say, wait, why are we sharing the money with you? Or if you're Ohio State, Michigan, you know, you're looking at uh, Purdue 
you're looking at Indiana and you're saying, why are we sharing this money with you? And that that sort of replicates across college football. And is it inconceivable to me that the biggest brands in each conference can look at this and say, you know what, if we leave these losers behind and do our own thing and we negotiate our own television agreement collectively with these 32 teams, maybe we could double our money. I, I don't think that's that inconceivable in an era where USC, UCLA just left the Pac-12 for the Big Ten. Right. Yeah, and I think that schism that you talk about could be what, what ushers this in, right? When Alabama says Vanderbilt, enough. Uh, go to Conference USA. We've had enough. And Michigan says, yeah, Purdue and, and whoever, like, you know, go away. That could be what leads to it. That'd be really interesting. I'd love to uh, look into that and think about that more, that if at some point these schools decide we can make more money without you, and let's all team up and make a super group. Let's make the Justice League of America with college football. I think that'd be, that would be what would make it happen, that they say enough is enough. We're going our own way. All right. Are you ready to talk about games coming up in week let's one? Let's do it, Dan. Week one. Today, today's right. Tuesday. Is this Tuesday Today, we're recording? Tuesday. We will have games Thursday Friday, night. Saturday. And Saturday. And Sunday. And Sunday. Monday. And right. Monday. If you, if you count yeah. what's going to happen to Georgia Tech on Monday is obviously, yeah. We've got games all week. We've got five <laughs> days of games. Um, week one is always great like this. We said this last week. We always do such a great job with week one in college football. Let's take one of these great games and just move it to week zero and just move it back and put it on at 730 on ABC or somewhere. That's what I would like to see. But I digress. Great schedule. A couple of big games. By the way, since you mentioned Georgia Tech, I, I just want to touch on this briefly. So they're playing Monday night. It's going to be national television. It's in Atlanta, but it's not on Georgia Tech's campus. It's at Mercedes-Benz Stadium downtown, and they're playing Clemson in the opener. And, you know, I don't know what Georgia Tech is going to look like. They lost a bunch of guys. They brought in a bunch of guys. It's a it's a heavy transfer portal team. We know that things have not gone well for for Jeff Collins since he's been at Georgia Tech, and, and it certainly seems like there's a lot of pressure on him as you – look at just the overall tenure and the trajectory. This is a year he needs to win some games and show that he's the guy. Well, the schedule for Georgia Tech in a year where their coach has to prove he should be there long-term, open with Clemson, non-conference, Ole Miss, Central Florida, and the University of Georgia. Good freaking luck. Who is dumb enough to make that schedule? It's going to be really bad. I mean, what's the feeling around Atlanta, Dan, about Jeff Collins? Not as a person, but is there any – are you sensing any sort of excitement among people you know from that fan base who are like, well, yeah, we've been building towards this? Because like you said, you look at the schedule. I don't care what they've done. Uh, I don't, I just don't, I don't yeah. even see five wins, even being nice. It's a terrible schedule. Yeah. It's a terrible schedule. I mean, this is a program that if – you're going to play in the ACC, and the ACC is not the most rugged conference, but you're going to play Clemson, you're going to play Florida State, you're going to play Miami, you're going to play Virginia Tech, like Pittsburgh. You're going to play these teams pretty much every year. Well, you know, kind of if you're building, you want to get bowl eligibility and get some momentum. You play Mercer. You know, you you play Chattanooga. You know, you, you play Louisiana Monroe. That's who you play in non-conference. Instead, they've got Ole Miss, UCF, and Georgia. It's a big problem. It, it, it pretty much halts your growth and ability to you know, try to have a, one of those feel-good six-win seasons where you go to the Mayo Bowl and, everyone, and everyone's happy about it. it it's, it's just not possible. The feeling is that, um, that, that Collins has kind of been invisible. And I don't want to spend much time talking about Georgia Tech, but you know Jeff Collins, when he got the job, was all over the place. Mr. Waffle House Cup in his hand, all over town, every interview, pumping everything up, marketing, marketing, hashtags, Twitter. I mean, he's basically kind of gone underground. He doesn't do a lot of the Twitter stuff anymore. He doesn't walk around with the Waffle House Cup anymore. It's just, all right, low-profile Let's let the results speak for themselves, but he needs some results. Yeah, yeah, he does. I think if they got the six with this schedule and this is it for Georgia Tech, 
if they got the six wins, clearly that, that's an enormous, enormous progress. You might need to go five and three in the ACC to do that. Enough about Georgia Tech. Unless they do something amazing this season, that's probably the last time we'll mention them. But uh, that is the Monday night game that if you are still starved for football after everything this weekend, it will be there for you on Labor Day. All right, so let's talk about let's talk about Thursday. Um, there's actually a good game Thursday night, West Virginia at Pitt, a rivalry, a real rivalry that has been, I guess, a victim of conference realignment over the last decade because they used to play in the Big East. Pittsburgh went to the ACC. Virginia, West Virginia got stuck in the Big 12. They have not played in a while. It is now back. And this is one of those rivalries that it's it's between two schools that are not, you know, they're not the most high profile. They're rarely in the mix for the national championship or college football playoff. But it's this kind of game that gives the sport texture. It's a texture game. And absolutely. It's yeah. fun that it's it's fun that we have it. Yeah, you nailed it. These are the kind of games that separate college football from the NFL. Um, if we only cared about Alabama uh, not Alabama, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Oregon, Georgia, which we'll talk about a bunch, um, you kind of lose the, the like you said, the texture of the sport. So these are not two outstanding teams. I think Pitt's better than West Virginia. I'm not a huge fan of West Virginia this year, but um, really awesome to see it back. It's like seeing Missouri, Kansas back, or, you know, obviously Texas and A&M back. Um, so really cool. That's one of the big games, Dan. I'd say Penn State at Purdue is another Thursday night game. That's really interesting. Penn State is always, always, always on the road against a Big Ten team to open the year. Um, but our expectations are a little bit higher for the Nittany Lions this year. Uh, if we think they're this good, they should beat Purdue by 10 to 14 points. So I think those are two telltale games coming out of Thursday heading into the weekend. Yeah, if I'm Penn State, if I'm James Franklin, I'm a little bit nervous about it in the sense that you know, you have to open on the road in Big Ten play. And there is, I think, a baseline level of competence at Purdue under Jeff Brom that that maybe you wouldn't have seen six, seven years ago. It's a losable game. Oh, yeah. It's a it's it's not the easiest opener. And the way that I think Penn State fans are feeling about the program right now. They just gave James Franklin this big new contract, despite the fact that he's coming off a couple pretty mediocre years by Penn State standards. This is one I'd be pretty nervous about. Yeah, and a lot of people have talked up Purdue as a team that could win the West um, in the Big Ten. I I'm not, like, arguing against that at all. They very clearly can. Um, but uh, th that just reinforces your point. I don't think Penn State's just going to have a walkover, like, against Purdue. Purdue's a legitimately a, a bold team and maybe a little bit more. So just from Penn State's perspective, if they do take care of business and it is a 14-point win, which I think is, is possible and if not probable, that to me says that we can have a little bit of faith in Penn State. So not to like not focus on Purdue, but I think the story of this yeah. game coming out of it is going to be the Penn State result. Yeah, also on, Friday, on Thursday, sorry, you've got Ball State at Tennessee. We'll get to look at the Vols and, and that high-powered offense on the SEC Network. Louisiana Tech at Missouri, it has been quite an offseason for Eli Drinkwitz as it normally is. Um, but, you know, at some point the sideshow has got to end and you've got to actually play ball. This is a big year for Drinkwitz, in my opinion. You know, not, not that he's going to get fired or anything like that, but if it's a, if it's a five and seven or a four and eight, it starts to set the narrative. Yeah, and and look, Missouri uh, fired his successor or his predecessor for being in this range, right? This six and six, seven and six, six and seven range. So it is a big year for him. I think he has a lot of goodwill there, but like you said, four and eight, four and eight would feel bad. would be Would be rough for him, and I think he'd enter twenty three as one of those guys in the hot seat. I mean, we haven't seen tremendous results. I think we've just seen adequate results. But yeah, he has. He's drummed up support. They're doing okay recruiting the region. Um, but there's a lot of room there in the east behind Georgia. Missouri as a program and as a junior, uh, if they can get into that number two or number three spot, I, I think it would really signal that they're that they're there for keeps. But I do worry, like you said, this could be a five-win team. 
One more thing to mention from Thursday, New Mexico State opens at Minnesota, the return of Jerry Kill to the sidelines, a guy who, you know, was out of coaching, had, had some health issues, and really an interesting hire for uh, New Mexico State because he is the type of coach from a reputation standpoint that you would not typically have at New Mexico State, but because of just various issues and and the fact that he was retired, basically, and, and kind of came back halfway. I mean, he's a really good football coach, and it'll be interesting. It makes New Mexico State much more interesting to watch. You may not know this, or some of our listeners may not know. Not a fan of P.J. Fleck. Not a fan. So uh, I've seen written this week that they're wondering if there's going to be a post-game handshake. I don't get into this nonsense. It sometimes can be fabricated, but there's some animosity there between uh, Jerry Kill and yeah. the guy who replaced him with the Gophers. Permanently replaced him with the very, Gophers. Very, very interesting. Yes. Very interesting scenario. All right, let's move on to Friday. There's five games. You know, a couple interesting things. Brent Pry is making his coaching debut with Virginia Tech. They're playing on the road at Old Dominion. Uh, you've got Temple at Duke, another game featuring uh, two new coaches, uh, both both Temple and Duke. Uh, Mike Elko, it'll be really interesting to see with Duke because um, I'm not totally sure he knew exactly what he was getting himself <laughs> into when he took that job, uh, but I think he'll find out pretty fast. And then uh, Illinois at Indiana, TCU at Colorado. So not marquee matchups, but but some some solid, you know, solid Power Five matchups. Yeah, TCU at Colorado is one that I know I'll be watching. Uh, first look at Sonny Dykes and how his offense has been built up these last eight months. He has said they're going to use three QBs. I think they'll probably end up using two, most likely. It'd be interesting to see if eventually um, uh, Chad Morris's kid is the answer full-time. They should beat Colorado, yeah. even with the new offense, or not really new offense, but new coaching staff. They should beat Colorado. I, I think Colorado's going to be really, really stinky. Really yeah, bad. I got a bad feeling. Mm. When has Colorado not been really bad? There was like maybe seven weeks in the COVID year, right? They were okay. They, Under they Carl a... Durrell. Yeah. Um, also, I'm trying to think. I was probably in my young double digits. They were pretty good. Pretty nasty, actually, in the in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, into early 2000s. It's been like 20 years, roughly, give or take. All right. Let's get on to Saturday. I don't know where you want to start. I want to start with Notre Dame at Ohio State. Big game for Ryan Day, in my opinion. Marcus Freeman making his debut. Well, not technically because he did coach the Fiesta Bowl last year, but I think this is a little different level in terms of having the full offseason and everything that Notre Dame has done in recruiting, and now you got to go prove it on the field. He is pulling out the disrespect card because they are 17-point underdogs in this game. That certainly feels like a lot to me. I know Ohio State's good. Are they really that much better than Notre Dame? It feels like a lot. It sounds like a lot. I mean, these are, these are two top six or seven teams. I, I forget where Notre Dame is in the AP, but it feels like a lot. Um, I don't know what is to be gained from Marcus Freeman telling his team that they're going to be that they're underdogs by seventeen and a half points. He was like, "Hey, I'm going to go tell the guys this. Is that going to help? Like, is that?" Is that why they're going to win? They're, they're just, they, are they that disrespected that they'll beat Ohio State? I don't really know about that. But in his defense, 17 and a half is a lot. I'd put it at like 10 or 11, personally. Yeah, look, it's at Ohio State and all the returning talent on offense for the Buckeyes. Like, they're going to score points for sure. But it's an opener. And often in openers – we can go back through year after year. What happens in the opener is not always indicative of, of what the team, either winning or losing, is going to be as you get into October, November, December. It, it's often very, very misleading. Like last year, for instance. Remember last year in the opener, the Clemson-Georgia game? That, that first of all, everybody, everybody basically picked Clemson to win that game. I didn't. I thought it was the most obvious thing ever that Georgia was going to win and that Georgia was, was a much better team than Clemson, but, and, and, and Georgia did win, 
but it was an ugly game. It was not a dominant performance. It was like a defensive score difference between the two teams on that day. But that wasn't indicative of what those two teams were going to be. Georgia, as we know, turned out to be the best team in the country. And and Clemson subsequently struggled quite a bit for, for most of the season. So that's the part of it to me that, that in week one, you just can't really get your arms around is like these, these marquee teams that we think we know. The way they play is typically not much of a reflection on what actually they're going to look like when the season really gets going. Yeah, I mean, think back to Notre Dame's opener last year against Florida State. Um, that was like a three-point yeah. win, and yeah, we thought, well, what do we – so, um, like you said, it, it's impossible to know exactly what you're going to see from both teams. But the reason why, really, I think 17-and-a-half is a lot is that it suggests, really, that Ohio State's going to run – not literally with their running game, but just run past and leave Notre Dame in the dust. And I think that's a little bit – Yes, it does say something about Ohio State. They've earned the right to be the favorite here. But I think it doesn't really look at the fact that Notre Dame's a lot more talented than, than maybe they're getting credit for in terms of their speed and athleticism. Definitely needs to be upgraded. I think Brian Kelly made that pretty clear between the lines as he left, that he, that they need to get to a different level of athlete to win a national championship. But I think Notre Dame, from a speed perspective, a length perspective, they match up well enough with Ohio State where for them to lose by 17 or lose by more than 17 would mean that, that they're losing a turnover battle or they have a defensive touchdown or they have a give Ohio State a really short field in a crucial spot. So all those things could happen. Um, but just based off looking at these two teams on paper, I don't think Ohio State is 17 points better than Notre Dame, which is what the spread implies. Basically, they're two touchdowns favorites. Yeah, I like Ohio State to win the game, but I, I think it's more likely to be somewhere between seven and 10 points. Okay. I'm with you. Hey, but one game that's also a 17 point spread, Dan is uh, Oregon. Yeah. I know what against you're Georgia. Say. Yep. I buy the 17 yep. on that one. Yeah. You know, what's funny is just this morning, I was actually talking with a Georgia fan uh, here in Atlanta and they uh, hated the spread. They were very nervous about the fact that it was a 17 point spread. They felt like it was, that was way too many points. I would respond by saying maybe Georgia fans just have not caught up yet to the new reality that they're kind of the new Alabama and that when they get into these openers and they're a 17-point favorite against a supposedly quality team, they're going to win by 30. Uh, the the talent gap between Oregon and Georgia uh, is substantially bigger than the talent gap between Notre Dame and Ohio State to me, Dan. Do you agree with that? Yes, yes, I do agree with that. Bo Nix, Bo Nix. We get to watch Bo Nix in the in the yellow and uh, in, in green, or is it gold and green, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I don't know what kind of difference Bo Nix is going to make in this game, except that he knows what Georgia's defensive scheme looks like. He knows how uh, violent they are. He knows how aggressive they are. So at least he can tell the guys on the way to the game in the bus, like, this is going to get really shitty, guys. Like, <sighs> It's going to get really, really bad. That's pretty much all that Bo Nix does to give me faith that Oregon's not going to get boat raced out of this one. Um, I would take Georgia plus 17 points, minus 17 points to win this game. Yeah, I, I think Georgia probably wins and, and, and likely covers as well. It's in Atlanta. It, it's going to be a long trip for, for Oregon. It's a new head coach, Dan Lanning, who – is getting some stuff done on the recruiting trail. And uh, I will say this, Oregon's NIL is uh, about as good as it gets in terms <laughs> of the things that are being done to uh, give recruits options for making money, let's just say. It's it's high, high level at Oregon. Yeah. Who's the best? Who's got the best NIL industry going on, Dan? I don't know enough about it honestly, to say which school has kind of got it together. But based on the recruiting classes of last year, I think you'd certainly have to put Texas A&M right up at the top. Yeah. Did we ever decide whether or not um, they were giving guys 30 million bucks? I feel like we never really got yeah. the wrong bit. We talked about this in the summer, but who knows anymore? Um, 
the thing is, most of the numbers that get thrown out are, are maybe either exaggerated or not real or contingent on certain things. So I don't know exactly. I don't think it was that much money, uh, but certainly Texas A&M seems to have figured out how to do NIL at a level that maybe a lot of other schools didn't last year. And that's where this is going to be interesting as you get into year two and year three of it to me is just kind of how schools will, will now try to one up each other. It's, it's, it's getting kind of crazy. Well, let's give Oregon three years and then we'll play this game again, but just give Georgia the win and we'll move on to week two. If you're the ducks. How about the urban Meyer bowl in Gainesville, Utah at Florida, two schools where urban was the head coach. I give Utah a lot of credit for agreeing to open on the road in the swamp. That is not easy under any circumstances. Utah coming off the Rose Bowl appearance, Florida debuting Billy Napier as the head coach. Anthony Richardson is going to be unleashed this year as opposed to last year when it just never seemed like Dan Mullen was willing to fully commit to him. I'm going to be very interested to see what Florida looks like. At the same time, this is the kind of game that we've been clamoring for. Intersectional, it's a home and home. It's not a neutral site BS deal that we're seeing on week one games. A lot of times this is, this is, this is for real. This is what college football doesn't have enough of. And I give both schools credit for playing the game. And I just love the word intersectional. I think it's a fantastic word that we should, I don't know when it ever left the lexicon, but I, I would really like to bring that back. Um, I would like to hear your thoughts on this game, Dan. My thoughts on the gameplay itself is I like Florida having a little bit of the element of surprise. And I think that's a benefit for them. Yeah. You know, I don't really know what to make of the heat. Like it's not like Utah's coming from, from Siberia. You know what I mean? Like they, it's been hot. They've, they've played in, in the sun. So I don't know what to make. Well, of and, that. and they're, and they train at altitude, right? So that that sort of gives them an advantage on some level when they come back down to sea level. That that they're well conditioned, no no doubt about it. But it is going to be you know hot and muggy even at seven p.m. That's not something you typically get out in the mountains. Is is that sort of thick, sultry humidity? So advantage Florida there, uh, but. You know, the, the biggest thing to me is Utah's been a slow starting team under Kyle Whittingham for several years. You know, they, they don't play their best football early, and you, you can't just kind of saunter in and get beat by, you know, three touchdowns in a game like this and expect to be taken seriously for the playoff when you start rolling over Pac-12 teams. And make no mistake, there's a lot of people who believe Utah – is is the favorite to win the Pac-12 and potentially have a shot at getting into the college football playoff. Yeah, and and from the like the the optimistic glass half full perspective, even if Florida ends up being the average team that we kind of expect, like a seven and five, maybe eight and five SEC East team, this is the sort of win that they'll talk about in November as a playoff committee. You went on the road against an SEC team, non-conference play. You've beat X number of Power 5 teams, X number on the road. So we all know what's at stake for Utah in the broader Big 12. It's respect, it's it's esteem, it's recognition. So uh, if they do fall by 14 or 17 points, I don't really imagine any way at all that Utah is going to get to the college football playoff. I mean, it's not even September yet. It's just hard for me to imagine the roadmap that gets you there. Um, barring, you know, chaos, which, of course, we're going to inevitably have chaos. A couple other things that have caught my eye for Saturday. You've got the debut of Lincoln Riley at USC. They're playing Rice. Unfortunately, it's on the Pac-12 network, which means I will not really be able to watch it. Uh, I don't think anybody's really going to be watching it because <laughs> who watches the Pac-12 network for anything? Um part of the reason why they're not going to be in the Pac-12 any longer. Let me think uh, if I've ever watched a program on that network other than a game. I couldn't even tell you what they have. So, no, I'm I haven't even watched games on there because the last time I tried to watch Pac-12 network on my cable system, it was in standard definition. Oh. And I am not going to sit here 
and be watching a game like it's 1987. Yeah, I'm not doing it. You know what I mean? I'm not doing that. that. Uh, I've reached a point with my eyeballs where everything must be crystal clear and in amazing definition. I'm not going, like you said, uh, I don't want to watch the uh, CBS game from 1988 anymore. I'm, it, it needs to be, I want to feel like it's right against my face. I want to see pores. So I'm not watching any Pac-12 network. And I bet you, no offense to people who work there, I think uh, uh, Yogi works there still, I believe, at the Pac-12 network. I just imagine their production value and production standards are, are just really poor. It's just a feeling that I have. But I'm not speaking from experience. Saturday, we've also got Cincinnati at Arkansas, 3.30 ESPN. Not a lot of buzz about Cincinnati, given the fact that they were in the playoff last year, competed fairly well against Alabama in, in that game in, in the Cotton Bowl. Obviously, they lose significant talent. Sauce Gardner, uh, Desmond Ritter, who, by the way, looks like he might be the starting quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons uh, at some point this season. He's he's played well in training camp and in the preseason, and, and a lot of people around here where I live are, are excited about Ritter's potential. So it's a little bit of a reset moment for Cincinnati, but this is the kind of game at Arkansas where if you're Luke Fickle, you can prove that your program has some staying power. And they're obviously about to go into the Big 12, and the competition there is going to be significantly better than it was in the American. Uh, this this is going to be an interesting Cincinnati season to, to watch as, as they transition both from a roster standpoint and a conference standpoint Um couple years down the road yeah and, and like you said it's not um i believe they had eight guys go in the draft and it wasn't like sixth seventh round guys they lost some major major star power so i think it's a lot to ask them to win at arkansas even if arkansas is not alabama it's a lot for them to ask it's a lot to ask of them to win this game i've seen cincinnati pick as low as third in the american i've not seen anyone lower than third um but I think the team you see on Saturday is probably more reflective of that. And I think they're going to have some struggles early, but by October, November, if we know anything about Luke Fickle and his program, they're going to be playing pretty good football. So I still think they're a borderline top 25 team, but um, I don't expect them to win on Saturday. But if they do, Dan, it, it, it changes what we think. I think right now, I don't know if you're in agreement, but I think it's generally accepted that Houston is the preseason favorite in the American, probably the preseason favorite for the New Year's Six. But if since he goes out, and just you know swallows up Arkansas like they did a bunch of teams last year and wins by ten or thirteen and plays really physical. Obviously, you you bump them back to the top of the line. Um, I don't expect that to happen, but certainly possible. We briefly touched on North Carolina at the top of the podcast, so they've got to turn around after playing FAMU last week and go on the road to Appalachian State. That's one if I'm Mac Brown. I'm I'm a little concerned about because. Uh, Again, they, they have the advantage of already playing a game and getting maybe some of those issues out of their system. But if you're North Carolina, you never want to play at Appalachian State, in my opinion. And it just feels like trap game written all over it. Yeah, why are they playing this game? What is the benefit for UNC to play this game? Um, if they play the first half against App State like they did the first half against – Florida A&M, they could get into a really dangerous spot because we, we all know. App State's a yeah. legitimately good team. I think they're in my preseason top 25, like the back end, 24, 25 something. Um, it's like a, a one of those dolls that you pull the string on the back with App State. You pull the string, they're an 8, 9, 10-win team. So I'd be super nervous from UNC. <laughs> really, really nervous. Because even on a good day, I think you can lose this game. And if they show out flat, I mean, I think App State absolutely could win this game. In the same vein, NC State, a team that everyone's hyping up in the preseason, is opening at East Carolina. And this is a game that, you know, historically, North Carolina State has lost many, many times. And East Carolina's been down for quite a while, but they did show signs of life last year under Mike Houston, who's a very, very good coach. And if their trajectory continues the way it's been, this is actually going to be, I think, at least – in the early window, the noon window, this might be the game that I'm locked in on even more so than Colorado State, Michigan, which we'll talk about in a second. I am going to really be interested to see how the Wolfpack looks in East Carolina, which 
if you've never been there, if you're not familiar, they've got a 50,000 seat stadium. They fill it back in the heyday when they were good. That was a very tough place to play. And I think it's going to be the same way this week. Yeah. Um, ECU has absolutely turned a corner. I'm just thinking if a loss at ECU week one with the highest preseason ranking in, in modern program history, that would be so NC State. It'd be the truest distillation of the Wolfpack and the NC State fan base um, that, gosh, I hope that doesn't happen. But like you said, this is absolutely, absolutely they could lose this game. Um, but if they're for real, they're going to win by 14. I mean, come on, let's get real. Devin Leary, by the way, is he – where do you got him? You you saying that he could make some noise? Is he a Heisman, like second, third tier guy? Do you think it's possible for Devin Leary to, to make enough national news to, to get into that race? I would say no, but when do they play Clemson? Usually they play Clemson like Usually it's early, right? Early, yeah. Yeah. So let me look up the schedule because that would determine it. Because that's the game, with all due respect to uh, East Carolina and any other game NC State has uh, coming up, I, I just don't think anyone's really going to be locked in on them until they play Clemson. It's October 1st. So okay. they've got Charleston Southern – week two, they host Texas Tech week three, UConn week four. You would assume they'll be 4-0 going to Clemson October 1st. So that that would be yeah. when we get the answer to that. Right. Maybe that's prime time. Maybe that's game day. 4-0, top 10, two top 10 teams potentially. Yeah, that's the game to circle for NC State and for Larry. So Colorado State at Michigan is, is another noon game on Saturday. ABC, Colorado State, new coach. Jay Norvell, everyone liked that hire. We'll see. I think the big story here is that Michigan, Jim Harbaugh came out with a statement over the weekend, and what they're going to do is split up the quarterback duties the first two weeks. Uh, so they open with Colorado State, and then they open with Hawaii. And, you know, I, I think the the thinking behind this, in my view, um, for Jim Harbaugh, is they're going to win both of these games. They've got two quarterbacks in Cade McNamara and J.J. McCarthy who are good, who are competent, who I would assume as they've gone through the spring, summer, and fall camp, there's not one who is like way, way above the other. And Harbaugh knows he needs them both this year. And so he's going to give one the opportunity to start and play against Colorado State, one to start and play against Hawaii, and then they'll go from there. People are killing Harbaugh for this, saying you've got to pick one quarterback, and this is you know Tom Brady, Drew Henson all over again, and they're going to do all this stupid stuff with the quarterbacks. It's going to blow up in their face. I, I don't think it's a big deal. I get what he's trying to do. I think both those guys, it keeps him in the fold. You're not going to have a guy transferring out. And then – Everyone will see when they make a decision, a real decision, everyone will have a lot more information to base it on as opposed to just, oh, well, this guy played better in practice. I actually think this is kind of smart by Harbaugh, and I think it can only help them make a better decision when the real games start for Michigan. Yeah, how could you argue that this is a bad move when, I mean, Harbaugh himself could play quarterback against Colorado State and Hawaii? <laughs> I mean... Obviously, he could because he's he's an NFL guy. You and I could very, very, very likely lead Colorado's lead Michigan past those two teams. Do I you truly think Jim Harbaugh sixty some. What is he sixty years old? Fifty something years old? Yeah, he's he, in his he actually fifty eight. He's fifty eight. You think he could actually play quarterback for Michigan right now, yeah. like on Saturday and win the game? Yeah, one hundred fifty eight. Absolutely, um, absolutely. They'd have to they'd have to protect uh, max protect at all times. But, yeah, I, I definitely think Michigan could win with Harbaugh quarterback against those two teams. Uh, part of me feels like this is just we got to get our quarterback situation in order before we play UConn, seeing how fired up the Huskies were in the Jim Mora era against Utah State. Um, what is, like, the other thing quarterback or coaches do with quarterbacks, right? They go into week one, they're like, we're going to alternate series. Or when someone's going to play the first half, someone's going to play the second half. And we accept that, like, well, he's got to make a decision. You know, we got to see some results. That's so much worse than this. That's, like, infinitely worse yeah, I agree. than this. So I, I like it a lot. 
I don't know about you, Dan. I don't think this is going to like set off a trend. No. But if you know that your first two games are winnable with both guys and you have two QBs that you want to audition, I love it. I think it's great. I don't know why people would have a hard time with it. No, I agree. I, I think there's really no downside to it. Uh, these are hard decisions. The hardest thing I think now for coaches is just when you make a decision and you hand the reins to one guy, you know that the other guy's probably going to transfer. That's just the way it is now. And that's okay too. There's nothing wrong with that. But I, I also think Michigan, they're trying to massage it a little bit. And I just think it helps both both guys and the fan base when, when everyone can sort of see for themselves when the lights are on, who's performing and who isn't. So um, now if both guys play, play awesome, then – it may not get solved, but that's a problem to deal with down the road. Yeah, I agree. All right, so I think we can skip over every other game that is happening on Saturday and go right to Sunday. Florida State versus LSU in New Orleans. Brian Kelly is is um, not revealing who's going to start a quarterback uh, for LSU. We can maybe make some assumptions here, but – this to me is is a very interesting game. I would certainly expect LSU to win, but how much better does Florida State look? They did fine in Week Zero against Duquesne, not uh, kind of an uneventful game, and they that they dominated as they should have. And what is what does LSU under Brian Kelly look like? What does Brian Kelly look like on the sidelines in the purple and gold? Hmm. This will be a game that. I'm very excited to watch. He's going to look super purple. Uh, I just think that that color with his with his overall rosiness is going to yeah, that's going to it's going to clash. It's going to clash. Um, have we been very quick side road? Have we done a podcast episode at all since the Brian Kelly accent debacle? Where he tried? Yeah, to- no, I think we did. did we? I think we did the whole family. Okay, I just want people to remember that, like. Yeah. Please don't forget that he tried to do a uh, Southern fried accent uh, in the, at a halftime of a basketball game and how badly he, that happened for him. Um, I, I can't stop thinking about it, personally. Um, this is a game. And then also, also those, weird, those weird dance videos with the What is going on with that? It makes me feel so old. Then I remember that. It's very cringy. 20 years on me. So, geez. Like, I don't get it's very it. cringy. Yeah, it looks like those old Snoop Dogg, not Snoop Dogg, a Puff Daddy and Mace videos from maybe 1997, 1998. That was the real, like, hip-hop videos had that fisheye thing going on. I, I don't even know what fisheye is. I believe Emily would probably know if, if I'm right about that. Um, I think uh, that this game, the uncertainty, Dan, about this game, tell me if you agree, we're going to dramatically overrate the winner of this game. Like, we're going to talk a lot about the winner of this game as, oh, boy, blah, 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 because there are those storylines that are ready to be picked about whichever team gets the win. I don't particularly think that either team is like a national factor, but I know that we're going to be talking about the winner a lot next week. The problem is that Florida state, like the last couple years has been a bad barometer of, of anything, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, cause they played, they played like Virginia tech, I think in the opener and they won that one a couple years ago and they looked, Oh man, they're Florida state's on the road back. No, they weren't, mm-hmm. you know? And then, and then last year they, they almost beat Notre Dame and everyone's really excited about, that effort from Florida State, no, didn't really mean anything. So, so I, I think like we now are scarred enough by the Florida State experience to not read too much into anything that happens either way. They're just a bad barometer right now. You know, maybe now maybe they will win or play really competitively in a loss and go on to have a really good season. Well, then we can reevaluate. But for now, I am not going to put any stock into anything that happens. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the game. Wow. Wow. Uh, I wish that we would all do that as well. As Americans, just enjoy the game. We're not going to do that, Dan. Uh, If Florida State wins this game, you're going to see too many. Talking about the Knolls. Talking about the Knolls. The Knolls are back. Florida State is back. You're going to hear a lot of that. And I don't really know if that's true or not for the reasons that you listed. I don't think we've seen nearly enough from Florida State just to say, oh, they beat LSU and they're back. Um, for Brian Kelly, LSU, yeah, like joking about, it's going to be weird to see Kelly on the sidelines. It definitely is. But it's also going to be super interesting to see what LSU does. What is LSU about? 
What are they about on offense? What is their defense going to look like? What do they represent? I mean, are they are they going to be pass heavy? Is there going to be any sort of QB run involved? Are they going to try to pound the ball between the box? I, I don't really know what they're going to be about. So I'm interested in that perspective. I tend to kind of be, um, I think, in a funny way, kind of cynical and jaded about Brian Kelly. Um, but we all know that he's a fantastic football coach. I mean, a really good college football coach. So uh, they'll get better. Be interested to see how good they can be from the start. Well, the one that we do know is that uh, we need to end this podcast because we've gone on too long. We had a lot to talk about with week zero and week one coming up. But I think now it's time to shut up and play. Buckle your chin strap, folks. Hydrate. Thank you very much for listening to the College Football Fix. Thank you to producer Emily. Thank you to Paul for being here. I am Dan Walken. We are going to drop new episodes every Tuesday. We'll be discussing the latest news and the poll results from around college football. Subscribe to the USA Today Sports Plus app and subscribe to the College Football Fix wherever you listen and find more of our content on usatoday.com. We will be back. We'll talk to you next Tuesday. Have a great weekend. The College Football Fix Podcast. 